2: Good morning and welcome to Score Values on 670 The Score. I'm Alex Kuhn. Coming up on this week's show, we discuss a traveling residency of musicians currently touring Illinois and playing restored instruments from the Holocaust and before while promoting Holocaust education as well as community togetherness. Also, the fallout from Northwestern's hazing scandal continues to make headlines. And earlier this week, Athletic Director Derek Gregg participated in his first public interview on the subject when he sat down with Dave Revson of the Big Ten Network. <laughs> The sound you just heard was a quartet in Logan Square last week. And somebody who can tell you more about the beautiful music and the history behind the instruments being played is Addie Goodman of JCC Chicago, who joins us right now on Score Values. Addie, how are you doing this morning?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, we're delighted
2: to have you. I, w- I want to tell you a quick story. One of my co-workers here at The Score texted me last week uh, that he was out taking a walk around Logan Square when he came across what he describes as the most beautiful sounds of violins that he's ever heard. He It was being played by a quartet in the park, so he stopped to listen. And little did he know that he would be getting one of the most unique musical and history lessons of his life. The act he was witnessing is called Violins of Hope. And the residency has been touring the Chicagoland area since April and will be here through September in partnership with JCC Chicago. Tell us a little bit about Violins of Hope.
0: Violins of Hope Chicago has been uh, become quickly a passion project for our organization and has been one of the most enriching and fulfilling programs, at least in my near 11-year history here at JCC Chicago. Uh, as you may know, Violence of Hope is a collection of about 70 psalm stringed instruments, primarily violins, but also viola, cello. And these instruments travel the globe as uh, tools of education, specifically around the Holocaust and even more so around humanity uh, tolerance, acceptance, kindness, unity the things that really make people people. We are so proud to be host to the longest uh, and largest, most expansive residency since the creation of Islands of Hope in 2006. We've been producing over 100 events from April through September, all across Chicagoland and the state of Illinois. We have been in uh, what we sometimes consider more far-flung communities, Champaign-Urbana, Peoria, Kankakee. If there is interest in uh, bringing this incredible program and experience to a community, we are there. Um, it has been such a gift to serve as community host.
2: Yeah, well, you guys at, at JCC Chicago is a proud alum of of JCC day camps and preschool and, and all of the programs yeah. you guys offer. So many different programs from uh, early childhood to programs for 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 spe- uh, people of special needs. And and you mentioned you like you like to bring people together of all different backgrounds. How do you feel like Violins of Hope does that?
0: We have reached almost 100,000 people through in-person exhibits, programs, performances since April, and we are still going strong. If that does not indicate how exciting it is to have an offering for such a diverse community, Chicagoland and well beyond, to really come together around those core themes, those core human values, um, again, the privilege is, is really all ours, and we are been at synagogues, churches, schools, libraries, museums, symphonies, we played at Grant Park, we're going to be at Ravinia in September, already sold out. And some of the feedback that we're getting and the comments people make, I'm just going to read you a couple of short quotes. One woman shared, as a young Jewish girl, I read so much about the Holocaust, today I'm 81 and I still have more to learn. Another uh, woman shared with us, this is my first time in a synagogue and I felt very comfortable and welcomed there. Uh, We are in a period of a lot of divisiveness in our our world, in our community. Um, Chicago is very diverse and has its own set of challenges. And to be able to have something so positive infuse um, our community and with a real focus on our young people, it has been, um, like I said, a true honor. And we're particularly thrilled for a couple of things yet to come.
2: Yeah, well, I want to kind of piggyback off of what you just said. You mentioned the the, the purpose of of these residencies uh, is to educate young people. Um, you you mentioned that in in the this time does it does it feel extra important in a time like this where we're seeing record amounts of anti-Semitism and hate and just in general to educate the younger generations on the grave dangers of such rhetoric.
0: You know we have a saying here at JCC Chicago, I like to talk a lot about growing good kids. Uh, we reach about sixty five thousand people in a typical year. Violence of Hope Chicago has really amplified that number and and tens of thousands of young people. And that that comes with tremendous responsibility. And our young people are are telling us that school feels a lot less safe than it used to, that there's tremendous concern around security, bullying. We've got active shooter drills in schools these days on the regular. Um, Our young people are telling us that their peers don't know what happened in the Holocaust, that they don't have an understanding of what it means to be Jewish. They don't know people who are Jewish. And part of Violence of Hope is really highlighting commonality, um, that we are all people. And when the Jewish community come, come forward with such incredible messages of positivity, we believe that that really bleeds into core memories and a real education around how people should treat one another. So, yes, it is, uh, you know, a story is based in the Holocaust, but it is really in modern times about how we respect humanity and fellow man and really are here as a community of togetherness.
2: Now, something that you you mentioned before is, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Illinois was the first state to implement mandatory Uh, teachings of the Holocaust in school. That is correct?
0: Yeah, so there are, I think at this point, 23 states that have mandated Holocaust education. Only 23. And while I tell you, just a few of those schools only signed on the last couple of years. So this is still a relatively new dynamic. And while Illinois was the first, I personally, through our work with Violence of Hope, was really surprised to learn that there is no guidance, there's no curricula, there's no reporting mechanism it's really up to the discretion of an educator how they address holocaust education and to what extent Um, i'm a child of the 80s and i remember having holocaust school holocaust assemblies in my elementary and middle school my high school i'm mom now to four young adults and they've never had any kind of um, meaningful expanse of education around what happened during the holocaust in their school environment Violence of hope, like you, I loved your story about um, happening upon it in the park. It is beautiful music, and music really means hope and, and instills hope. And that's a big part of where we're focusing on growing hope amongst our young people, in particular, as they are our future citizens and leaders and voters and we are seeking a kinder world than we exist in today. So um, there's there's no end to what we can accomplish, and we're really looking to make sure that Violence of Hope is accessible and also impactful, and that it is the kind of experience that kids are drawn to themselves. The music is beautiful, the stories are interesting, and those create the kind of memories and learning and, and inquiry that's important today.
2: Eddie Goodman, president and CEO of the JCC Chicago, joining us on Score Values this morning. Let's get into a little bit of the background of of Violins of Hope. You mentioned 70 different instruments that have that come from uh, some during the Holocaust. Some were used before, but they have been restored by Amnon and Avshalom Weinstein. Uh, Amnon and his son uh, uh, Avshalom are Israeli violin makers and they restored these instruments, and all of these instruments have a story. And we'll get to that in a second. But but how did these two come across these instruments?
0: My understanding, and Avshi, um, the son, has been working very closely with us and has been here in Chicagoland many times for our programs, and will be coming back um, in just a couple weeks for some beautiful programming downtown uh, my understanding is that, you know, this is really just like the, ex- the programming has become a passion project for JCC Chicago. This is their um, passion project, Life's Work. And somebody brought to their workshop a violin uh, that was played during the Holocaust. And in those early years, many of the people who brought them instruments, once kind of word got out that this was work that they were doing, um, really wanted separation from those instruments. The memories were, were, were horrible. Um, it was a kind of a memento of a time that didn't want to be remembered, and the Weinsteins took those violins and converted the tragedy around them into instruments of hope. And so the now they have their collection builds, and and we say seventy some. That's how many we have, kind of the whole available collection here in Chicago. But on August tenth at the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, we we're consecrating a new violin into the into the collection, and these days. Some of the people who come to them with instruments that have been discovered, uncovered, um, you know, unearthed from basements and attics is really to be able to bolster their initiative about uh, finding hope through music. Uh, So what started out as sort of I don't want to really think about to do this anymore and have this in my possession, it's a terrible reminder, has become the kind of reminder that is really filled with so much positivity. So I commend um, Avshalom and Avshi for their visioning, and it has been an incredible honor to work so closely with them.
2: Yeah, Avshalom said that there's no instrument that is more tied to the history of the Jewish people than the violin. He says that the instrument was played during celebration, and, and maybe more importantly, as a symbol of hope in times of great despair. What do you think he meant by that?
0: You know, music is integral to Jewish peoplehood. It is a mainstay of uh, connection and community, celebration and sorrow. Uh, when you review the violins in the collection, you will see that many of them, they're Stars of David, um, they are klezmer violins, and really come with them, the history of the Jewish people and the joyfulness that music has brought the peoplehood. So I, I think that that's, in my reading of um, what you've shared from his words, uh, that's really what we're focused on, is that the the... Yes, the instrument is always present, but it's the music and the sound that comes from that really, um, you know, speaks to your soul and to your heart so deeply.
2: You mentioned young people and and the education surrounding the Holocaust, and and you, so many of us are, are detached as we move further and further away from the atrocities. It's it's hard to wrap your mind around just how 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 awful and how how much. Uh, suffering went on. So you, you hear a number, and and that's just what what you you go with. You think that that that's awful. But how much do you think that these violins and the stories that each one of them tells humanizes well the, the atrocities that happened during the Holocaust?
0: So I'm going to tell you a story. Please. We were at Orland Park High School. And their orchestra leader is fantastic and has been playing. We we've have volunteer violinists you know, playing for us um, all through this period of time. And a violin that is part of the collection was played by a young girl whose name is Violetta. And this instrument was played at Auschwitz in the Women's Orchestra, and it was played by a woman named Violetta. And you think about what today's Violetta at Orland Park High School, when she goes home and, and talks about what she learned that day and what she experienced that day, thinking about the commonality, you know, generations apart of a Violetta on Chicago South Side and a Violetta in a concentration camp in Auschwitz, that really does kind of, I think, exemplify the human story that we're looking to demonstrate. We have ties that bind you know, across generations and across peoplehoods. And when you can see yourself in another person's story, and if that person's story is tragic or sad, you can think about it more deeply and more meaningfully when you have a tangible way to understand their story. And that's really these violins in the hands of young people where you can hear their music. They are intended to be touched and played. There is no at least as we have found yet, more meaningful way to really impart the impact of history onto today's young people such that they, too, can really learn from the past to inform our future. So moments like Violetta's are amplified exponentially in almost every space we're in and program we host. And when you think about the ripple effect of something like that, um, it's truly awe-inspiring.
2: Yeah, what an amazing story. And, and Violetta, what, what about the—that leads me to the, the, the musicians. How, how much do their stories get told? They're, they're the ones playing these this jaw-dropping music with these beautiful instruments. Uh, what can you tell us about the musicians?
0: Our musicians are uh, violinists. Um, I don't know how to play the violin, so I don't get to play Me much. Neither. <laughs> but Me if neither. you know how to play, you can play. And I think importantly, we have professional musicians playing at, at significant concert venues. We also have young people like those high school orchestra kids who are playing violins, yes, in their own programs at their home base, but also out into the world. Um, we're drawing on anyone and everyone who can competently play to have the experience of playing and therefore sharing and imparting the experience. And what we hear back from our musicians to a person, both our musicians and our volunteers, we have a beautiful cadre of volunteers who have been educated and trained on the stories of the violins and really travel with them as docents. From the violinists and the volunteers both, we hear incredible words of gratitude how meaningful it has been for them to be stewards of this project and stewards of the education and storytelling. Um, They many market as a culminating or high point of their musical careers at this point. Um, And, and so the musicians, while they vary in terms of who they are, um, they all share this commonality of wanting to impart um, these beautiful stories. And, you know, through the music and their experience, I think, in some ways is um, are some of the most powerful um, throughout these periods, past few months.
2: Eddie Goodman, president and CEO of JCC Chicago, joins us this morning on Score Values. And, Eddie, one of the great things about Violins of Hope is that there are so many different ways to experience it. There are history lessons surrounding the instruments themselves. There are concerts in the park, like I mentioned. And then there are large events, like the concert set for Tuesday, August the 8th at Gallagher Way. Tell us about some of the ways that people can experience Violins of Hope as it will be here through the end of September.
0: Through the end of September. So what, a couple things I would love to highlight. We are thrilled to be partnering with Chicago Cubs for the Growing Hope concert. Uh, it is August 8th at 7 p.m. at Gallagher Way outside of Wrigley Field. Uh, it's a free event. The concert is featuring uh, a number of fantastic talents. We are being MC'd by Montana Tucker, TikTok superstar. She's a dancer, singer, and the granddaughter of Survivors, and also the creator of a web series called How to Never Forget. Um, she has just an incredible story of her own, and she is going to both emcee um, our concert and perform. We're also welcoming Grammy Award-winning Israeli hip-hop artist Miri Ben-Ari. She's performed and recorded with Jay-Z, John Legend, Alicia Keys, and a number of other talents. The Growing Hope concert is uh, just going to be a a marquee event, and you can register for free again at jccchicago.org slash growinghope. And then another um, less kid-centric program, uh, but something that we're super excited about is a free one-day-only event at the Pittsburgh Military Museum and Library uh, on Michigan Avenue. It's Thursday, August 10th, from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Exhibits, performances, discussion. Afshir Weinstein will be there to help us consecrate the newest violin, the Alfred Eisenberg, into the collection with his son, Mikel. And uh, just so you know, Alfred Eisenberg, is this new violin, he was a lifelong violinist who fled Germany, he was drafted into U.S. Army where he became a Ritchie boy, a special unit trained for espionage. The story is incredible, and we're going to learn more about it at the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. And again, you can register for free, jccchicago.org, slash Violins of Hope.
2: Addie, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about the, this wonderful, wonderful event and all you guys do, uh, all, all the great work you do at the JCC Chicago.
0: It was a thrill to share with you. Thank you for helping us tell our story. And we look forward to seeing um, you in the park. And um, hopefully folks will come on out for some of these upcoming events.
2: One more time, the website to to register and and, and visit for Violins of Hope as well as JCC Chicago.
0: JCCChicago.org slash Violins of Hope.
2: That was Eddie Goodman, the president and CEO of JCC Chicago. Thank you so much to Addy for joining us to talk about Violins of Hope. And you heard it there. Growing Hope, the free event that you can register for at jccchicago.org backslash Growing Hope is set for a week from Tuesday. And it will be hosted by TikTok superstar Montana Tucker. Gates will open at 7 o'clock with the event concluding at 9 o'clock. Last week on the show, we got you caught up on the latest happenings as it pertains to the hazing scandal that has rocked the Northwestern Athletic Department. We have since learned of more allegations and litigation involving more sports being levied against the Athletic Department. This week, Big Ten Football Media Days took place in Indianapolis. The event usually features the head coach and three players from each school speaking to the media. Interim head coach David Braun spoke to the media, but we found out about 24 hours prior to the event that the players were not participating. According to them, it was their choice. Athletic director Derek Gragg, well, he sat down for his first in person interview since the allegations when he spoke with Big Ten Network's Dave Revson earlier in the week. Here is some of that exchange.
1: Derek, I want to dive into the allegations surrounding the football program, and I'm going to start with this. This interview that you and I are doing is the first time that any Northwestern administrator has appeared on camera during this. This has been going on for nearly three weeks. President Shill has released a few statements You have not spoken publicly. Why has Northwestern chosen to remain silent throughout all of this?
3: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the complexities of the legal situation that may be occurring. So what I wanted to do was really focus mainly internally because, again, the student-athletes are our first priority. And so we started working from the inside out. President Shields has been managing things externally and getting out the messages he wants to get out. And I certainly would never uh, want to do anything that preempts the president or the administration of the university. And so everybody felt like this would be a great opportunity for me to publicly uh, be outward facing, which is, which is what this is all about. But internally, we've had a lot of discussions starting with the student-athletes, the teams, the student-athletes, the the coaches, the head coaches in particular. We had an all-staff meeting earlier this week. And so I've talked to, as you can imagine, a numerous amount of donors, boosters, alumni, trustees, and that has been basically nonstop the last two or three weeks. So we wanted to focus in on on the inside of the house, and now we're able to get out some messages.
1: But certainly you acknowledge that People have kind of run roughshod over Northwestern during this time period. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, I suppose, but was this the right strategy given the way that Northwestern has seen its reputation suffer? Well, again, I,
3: I would go back to the, the legal complexities of the situation.
1: Okay. Um, I mean, those legal complexities still exist. Yes, they right do. now. All right, fair enough. Um, let's get into the firing of Pat Fitzgerald. To what extent? Were you looped in initially when President Schill determined that the best punishment for Pat Fitzgerald was a two-week suspension?
3: Right. I was uh, part of a small team that delivered that message to Pat Fitzgerald. And I think there's some questions about my, my uh, whereabouts during the situation. And so uh, very
1: involved initially. So. Did you feel like a two-week suspension was the right punishment at the time? Well,
3: that's something, again, with the legal situation, that we're not commenting a lot on
1: the actual process. Had you read the external report that Maggie Hickey, the attorney, put together before that punishment was handed down to Pat Fitzgerald? Had you read the entire report?
3: Again, uh, we're not discussing the, the report and the process. And uh, I I want to be careful about what I say on the record regarding whether
1: it's the report or the process. Why has Northwestern chosen not to release that report?
3: I can't speak to that. But it's a a private institution. and, And again, I don't want to get into the details of the report.
1: What do you believe Pat Fitzgerald knew about what was going on inside the football program?
3: I certainly can't speak to what I thought Coach Fitzgerald thought about what was
1: going on in the program. That's not a question that I would be able to get into. What what do you think he should have known? Like, do you share the belief that President Chill, the sentiment from him when he kind of reversed his course from the initial two-week suspension to the firing of Pat Fitzgerald, that, that it was based on what Pat Fitzgerald should have known that was going on in his program?
3: Well, I think that the president's been very public about his sentiments and his thoughts and, and decision making in this process, and I obviously support the president and the decision that was made.
1: You have an assistant coach, Matt McPherson, who is still on the staff, who was mentioned in one of the lawsuits that came out this week as having witnessed hazing. Again, that's an allegation in a lawsuit. but. He's still on the staff, at least as far as I know. Can you update us on Matt McPherson's status within the program?
3: Yes, that situation, every employee, no matter if it's a, a coach or university employee, is afforded due process. And so that situation is being looked into and investigated. And any other allegations that come forward out of this situation or anything in the future, will be heavily vetted. But again, everybody is afforded due process.
1: Do you have a sense as to when that due process will play out? And what is his role with the program while you're investigating those allegations? Right.
3: We don't we don't have a timetable on that, but right now he's still an assistant coach.
1: I want to ask a little bit about the vetting process at Northwestern and kind of the, the 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 mechanisms that are in place for situations like this one so give me a sense for what road a student athlete can take as of a month ago before all of this broke what road they can take if they feel like there is something going on in the program such as hazing or any other behavior which they find offensive how were they what was the reporting structure for them to to let administrators know this is going on right well
3: and like many universities there's a reporting mechanism any student athlete or student can report any type of allegation anonymously and but in this situation this information came in directly into our compliance office from through an email and what i'm proud about is and, and again my history unlike most athletic directors i have a deep history and compliance. I was over compliance, I was a compliance director at Michigan, Arkansas, and Missouri in years past. So uh, I believe in integrity and telling the truth and not burying the information. And this entire situation started with a self-report. And once we received the information, we reported it directly to the office of the general counsel, which is appropriate. And then, again, there is a reporting mechanism where anybody, any student or any student-athlete could report things anonymously, and um, that protects their identity and, and those types of things. And we're also going to work to shore that system up and make sure that everybody knows that it's available.
2: Once again, that was Northwestern Athletic Director Derek Gragg with Big Ten Network host Dave Revson last week at Big Ten Media Days in Indianapolis. That audio, of course, courtesy of the Big Ten Network. In two different lawsuits already filed against the university, former athletic director and current ACC commissioner Jim Phillips is named as a defendant. Phillips, from ACC Football Media Days in Charlotte last week, briefly commented on the situation.
0: This is a very difficult time for the Northwestern community, and my heart goes out to any person who carries the burden of mistreatment or who has been harmed in any way. During my 30-year career in college athletics, my highest priority has always been the health and safety of all student-athletes. As you know, with this matter in litigation, I'm unable to share anything more at this time.
2: That was former Northwestern Athletic Director and current ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips last week at ACC Media Days. That'll do it for Score Values this week. We thank President and CEO of JCC Chicago, Addie Goodman, for joining us. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about on a future edition of our show, or if you'd like to share information about an upcoming charitable event, send us an email at scorevalues 670 at gmail.com. That's scorevalues 670 at gmail.com. I'm Alex Kuhn, and thanks for listening to this week's edition of Score Values on 670 The Score.